Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Melody Musgrove and Dr. Kathy Grace with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. We are delighted to have as our guest for the podcast today, Dr. Bruce Perry. Many of you will not need any introduction to Dr. Perry. As uh, I had a young woman say to me when I mentioned that we were going to have Dr. Perry come, she said, oh, the Bruce Perry? And she was so excited. So he's been an active teacher, clinician, and researcher in children's mental health and the neurosciences for over 30 years. He's really focused on high-risk children, and he's been examining the cognitive, behavioral, emotional, social, and physiological effects of neglect and trauma in children, adolescents, and adults. And his work's really been instrumental in describing how childhood experiences, including neglect and traumatic stress, change the biology of the brain and, therefore, the health of the individual. Welcome to Mississippi, Dr. Perry. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So... We're just going to jump right in. You've been talking about kind of the power of relationships. You mentioned um, in your talk this morning the power of the relational moment. Could you talk some about that science of relationships and why it's important and what impact it has? Sure. You, you know, one of the things that most of us know is that human beings are we're relational creatures. We are social creatures. And because of that, our brain has these networks that are specifically tuned in to reading the the emotions of others. And when we are in the presence of somebody who is sending us nonverbal and verbal cues, but nonverbal in particular, cues of acceptance uh, and interest, it, it changes our own biology. So you can literally make somebody feel safe. You can make somebody feel rewarded and feel pleasure by being present. And the the good news about that is that because of the nature of the biology of uh, neurons and neural networks, our brain and these neural networks that, that are influencing all of our functioning, they're very responsive to very brief interactions. And it can be very brief positive interactions that can have th- these enduring positive effects. Or, as we all know, very brief negative interactions can also have enduring impact. But the, the good news part of it we're kind of focusing on because relationships are the most important element of being buffered from life's stressors and distress and even trauma. And so what we found is that you can take two individuals and one child may be in an environment where there's what we call relational poverty. They don't have really a lot of people around them. They're not connected to extended family. They're not part of a, you know, they're not connected in school. They may have all kinds of things within the family that are fragmenting. And when they experience trauma, they're going to have many more adverse effects chronically than a child who has the very same experience but has these relational connections. You know, we've been looking at that a lot because the number of children who in our culture who are exposed to various forms of adversity is is very high. And so it's obviously one strategy to dealing with that is decreasing the number of bad things. But we also need to think much more deliberately about how to increase positive things. 
And so then if a child does or not, does not have those positive interactions or relationships early in life, what impact does that have, say, on success in school or, you know, their other relationships or uh, what, what difference does it make when they're young? Again, those of you who are sort of early childhood informed appreciate the concept of attachment. We talk about this all the time. And one of the really important things that happens to an infant is that their first relational interactions with adults uh, begin to shape the way the neurobiology of connectedness is organized in their brain. And so if you have an attentive, attuned, loving set of caregivers, your brain begins to create uh, associations between human beings and comfort, human beings and safety, human beings and reward. And then as you get a little bit older and you meet other humans, like a pre-K teacher, you can benefit from the tiniest little positive interaction from that caregiver because your brain is receptive to that kind of positive interaction. If you have, however, early in life a caregiver who's overwhelmed or distressed or preoccupied or maybe even abusive, your brain makes associations between people and unpredictability, people and threat, people and unreliability and loss. And so as you get older, your ability to take advantage of what they're offering, like a a loving pre-K teacher Maybe you know, may send signals of acceptance to you and try to engage you, but your brain basically says, "I don't trust you," and therefore I'm I'm not going to internalize all the stuff that you're sharing. And so, over time, the ability to benefit from the relationally mediated social, cognitive, motor, and emotional experiences is diminished, and it it, it is you know it's one of the tragic elements of. Uh, impaired attachment is that you can have all kinds of wonderful experiences later on, but if you have had this attachment disruption, your capacity to fully benefit from these experiences is compromised. You said that you believe that we are squandering early childhood. That's a powerful statement. Could you, what, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, the, the malleability of the brain and, and the ease with which the brain can be influenced in positive ways, and of course, the ease with which it can be influenced in negative ways is highest when you're young. And uh, the younger you are, the more malleable the brain is. And so this would seem to be a logical time in life when we should try to create safe, predictable, nurturing environments for these children and for the adults who care for these children. And that's because we know that human beings are contagious to others. So if you have a dysregulated pre-K teacher, if you have a dysregulated parent, they are going to have a challenge regulating their own child. They're going to struggle with providing everything the infant needs. And so it seems odd to me that we spend so much money trying to change the brain of a 25-year-old who's struggling with substance abuse and other challenges when we could have earlier in life invested to create a healthy community and a healthy environment for young parents and their kids. 
And, and again, you know, the, the work by James Heckman and many other people who've looked at the economics of early childhood just bears this out that, you know, there's a very high return on investment for uh, early intervention models, particularly for kids that have environments where there's challenge and risk. You also talked about the power of, and I guess along the same line, the power of connectedness. And you said that kind of the unifying factor in all successful organizations is that connectedness. You even used the example that the Patriots are not such a great football team because they have necessarily the best talent, but because they have incredible connectedness. And and you talked about the importance of connectedness even in health and other outcomes. Could you talk more about that, how that impacts other parts of our lives? I don't want to delve too much into the neuroscience because I, I need pictures to do this. <laughs> but if you think about the human brain, it is organized from the bottom up, and it's it's got this hierarchical structure. So the there's the lower parts of our brain, like the brainstem, and then there's the top part of our brain, the cortex. And the cortex has all of these remarkable qualities, um, the ability to think in the future, the ability to reflect on the past, the ability to learn new cognitive things speech and language. And so all of the the attributes of human beings that we value very highly and that help make you successful are in your cortex. However, in order to effectively get to your cortex or influence your cortex, you have to go through the lower parts of your brain. And if those parts of the brain are disorganized and dysregulated, there will be inefficient internalization of the experience that you're in. So if it's a coach telling you something and you're dysregulated and upset, you won't process that as effectively. If you are dysregulated and it involves a motor performance, you will not perform with the same efficiency as if you were regulated and calm. And so the importance of relational connectedness is that human beings when they're in the presence of people who are sending them signals of acceptance and safety, will be better regulated. And so connectedness becomes this pathway to the cortex. It's the pathway to the part of your brain that that you're trying to get to if you're a teacher. It's the pathway to the part of your brain that you're trying to influence if you're teaching right from wrong. It's the pathway... Um, to any cortically mediated capability that you're trying to enhance or recruit to use. So like when you want a child to, quote, use their words, they can't use their words if they're dysregulated and you haven't been able to make them feel safe by connecting to them. And, um, you know, that's just one example. But if you sort of walk through everyday life, you realize that, wow, in every situation, listening to my supervisor, being able to supervise somebody else, being able to successfully communicate your needs to your partner, being able to sort of effectively teach your kids right and wrong, all of it requires that you're connected in a way that opens up their cortex to effectively absorb what you're trying to convey. Does that connectedness also have implications for, like, for the medical community, for our health and, and other you know, physical well-being? Absolutely, and I've I've kind of been focusing on the the upstream parts of the brain. You know this, and and so when you are dysregulated, the, these systems in your brain that control your stress response are also the very same systems that go out into your body and influence your heart and your pancreas and your lungs. 
And if that those systems are active and overactive and overly reactive, you're going to also not just interfere with, you know, thinking and feeling. You're going to interfere with cardiac regulation, with respiration, and so forth. And so, this is why, for example, kids that come from if you look at children in foster care who have had lots of developmental adversity that has altered the the reactivity and the sensitivity of these stress response networks. And that will, of course, influence that, you know, they may manifest emotionally as being labile and cognitively as having a hard time learning. But it also influences their physical health. So rates of asthma in kids that are in foster care are four times higher than kids that are not. Uh, rates of cardiovascular problems in those kids as they get older are much higher than children who haven't had developmental adversity that, that changes these stress response systems. So again, if you have, even if you've had these adversities that have altered these networks, you can address and heal those regulatory problems in context of patient, attentive, attuned, relational interactions. And the sad reality is many kids, unfortunately, live in such relationally fragmented environments that they don't have sufficient opportunity to get that kind of relational healing. And if again, if you look at almost any successful therapeutic experience, it is involved increasing the number and quality of relational, positive relational interactions. Again, that goes back to this connectedness concept, that connectedness is where it is. It's, it's, it's where it's at. I mean, no matter what you do, whether you want to be successful in business or successful in politics, successful in, as an educator, connectedness is at the core of your success. You also have talked about the fact that some many of the interventions that our programs are using are actually making kids and families in crisis worse. Um, could you talk about how, how is that? Well, I'll give you a simple example. A lot of our programs in schools to manage sort of behavior uh, involve points and level systems. They involve um, seclusion. They involve what many people consider punitive uh, interventions. And of course, they're just, you know they're put in place with good intentions, but they're fundamentally developmentally uninformed. And so if you take a child who's having trouble with attention and behavioral control and and the origins of those problems is from a a history of trauma and they're dysregulated, you cannot tell somebody who's dysregulated to regulate. You know, everybody who's listening has probably had the experience of, you know, sort of getting a little bit agitated about something and having somebody say, calm down which is probably, those are two of the most (laughs) dysregulating words in the English language. When somebody tells you to calm down, it does exactly the opposite. It makes you feel even more dysregulated. And so without intending to do that, that's what many of these interventions in school are. They'll take a child who's not following the rules, and then we will tell them, if you don't follow the rules, you're going to get in more trouble, (laughs) which is like, it does not regulate them. It just makes it worse. And of course, because human beings are contagious, a dysregulated child starts to dysregulate the teacher. And then the teacher gets angrier and raises his voice and takes a step towards the child, which 
to the brain of the child is escalating. And pretty soon you co-escalate into a situation where there's hands-on and there's a restraint and then there's everybody's angry. And, and that, again, that's, that started with that teacher trying to use a behavioral intervention by telling Billy that if you don't sit down, you know what the, you know, you know what the rules are, um, that you're going to lose one point. And if you lose one more point this week, you go to level zero. And if you're at level zero, you can't go to recess. And, and so that effort to use a behavioral intervention just blows up and results in restraint. You know, when you look at in schools and you look at residential settings and mental health settings, the, there's a direct relationship between the efforts to apply sort of contingency-based or behavioral programs and the number of restraints. And so when you move from a traditional sort of behavioral program to a more relationally-based uh, intervention model, restraints go way down, uh, you know, expulsions go down, seclusions go down, critical incidents go down, teacher attendance goes up, you know, that climate in the in the school goes up student attendance goes up grades go up and this is all because they're creating a more regulated environment where you're not having as many of these dysregulating interactions wow because um you know now so many schools well most schools really do use a more punitive discipline approach and in fact, many have zero tolerance policies where, you know, a kid, you know, screws up one time and, and even, yeah, and they're out or even, you know, the, originally those were intended to be for the most severe consequences. But now we hear about children who are being suspended from school and subjected to very punitive uh, measures for really relatively minor kind of age appropriate, age expected behavior. So that is very concerning. So. You've been at this for over 30 years. You've had a lot of experience. What have we, and the science has come a really long way. What are you seeing change, and what is your hope for what we're going to be able to do in the near future? Well, I'm actually quite hopeful. I mean, we and many other people who try to do this work have had great success in introducing some of these concepts and practices into schools with good outcomes. We, for example, our working group is working with the entire state of Arizona, the entire state of Colorado, the entire state of New Mexico in creating trauma-informed, developmentally-informed practices that are being rolled out through the whole state. And, you know, change is hard, but this has been going relatively well because of the immediate uh, and obvious um, positive results. You know, we, I was just in Austin Texas a couple of weeks ago in a uh, the, in elementary school that was historically the worst performer uh, and biggest outlier uh, started using these practices helping the teachers understand these things and they went from being the worst school to being one that's kind of in the middle now which is a huge change and these are kids that 100% of these kids are qualify for school lunch and the majority of the people in that community are poor and and they've started to have really remarkable improvement in test scores in attendance no teacher turnover because teachers like being there now cuz they're they're effective you know they they're able to form these loving relationships with kids and teach them in ways that were not that were hard before when they were 
sort of trying to get these kids to improve using behavioral approaches. So we're hopeful because, you know, what happens is once something starts to work, it takes off. And we've seen this happen in Columbus, Ohio, and lots of other places that we work. And so I'm, I'm optimistic about that. I'm also optimistic about the fact that increasingly these concepts are being integrated into training for teachers and training for social workers. So we have uh, worked with a number of schools of social work like Loyola and Chicago and University of Texas at Austin where they've created a specialized track where if you graduate, you've actually become certified in, in one of these approaches that we teach about. And, and so they're immediately ready to go out and, and think in a different way about how to solve these problems. So we're, um, an optimistic group. So, and we see, have lots of opportunities to see progress in, in schools and in mental health settings. So, and at the same time, we realize that there's a long way to go. So we're going to keep pushing. Thank you, Dr. Perry. Our guest today has been Dr. Bruce Perry, who is Senior Fellow of the Child Trauma Academy. His work has resulted in the development of an innovative clinical practice and programs working with maltreated and traumatized children, most prominently the neurosequential model, a developmentally sensitive neurobiology-informed approach to clinical work, education, and caregiving. It's been a great pleasure, Dr. Perry. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. We like to end each podcast with a poem, and today's poem is The Swing by Robert Louis Stevenson. How do you like to go up in a swing, up in the air so blue? Oh, I do think it the pleasantest thing ever a child can do. Up in the air and over the wall till I can see so wide, river and trees and cattle and all, over the countryside. Till I look down on the garden green, down on the roof so brown. Up in the air I go flying again, up in the air and down. That's The Swing by Robert Louis Stevenson from FamilyFriendPoems.com. Please give your child the gift of poetry. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at olemiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity. 